Genesis chapter 22 closes with some information about the woman who would eventually become Isaac's wife, Rebekah. This interlude, which at first glance seems unrelated to the subject matter around it, is placed here to signal that we're drawing near to the end of the Abrahamic narrative and drawing closer to the narrative concerning Abraham's son, Isaac. It's like foreshadowing. We're not going to spend much time on the end of chapter 22, but I would like to quote Philip Eveson here before we move on to 23. Eveson says, The placing of information about Rebecca at this point, that is the end of chapter 22, teaches us another lesson about God's providential dealings with His people. Before Abraham began finding a wife for Isaac, God was already at work preparing the way. In God's ordering of affairs, there are no accidents. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. We fret and worry too much. If we are His children through faith in Christ, then we can be assured that the Lord has our best interests at heart. Indeed, and those are some comforting thoughts on this passage which signals an impending transition from Abraham to Isaac. Now let's turn our attention to chapter 23, where we'll spend the rest of our time this evening. Chapter 23 is a further signal that we're reaching the end of the Abrahamic narrative. It focuses on the death and burial of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And chapter 23 is almost an antithesis or a contrast to the second Sarah is my sister escapade recorded in Genesis chapter 20 where Abraham demonstrated functional unbelief. Here in this passage, Abraham demonstrates functional belief and offers us another example of the faith in action that we've seen at various points throughout his life. Particularly last week, Uh, We saw that again as his faith was manifest in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God. We are reminded in this passage about the universality of death. John Currid comments on verse 2 saying that the words, And Sarah died, echo the oft-repeated refrain that was introduced in Genesis chapter 5. All people, without exception, die. You remember Genesis chapter 5? goes like this. When Abraham, pardon me, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. And so on, Genesis chapter 5 goes. And he died. 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 Following on the heels of Adam's fall into sin, Genesis chapter 5 is introducing to us 
that something very radical has happened where that which was always intended to be together, body and soul, will now be, at least temporarily, separated by death without exception for every person that lives on this earth. Chapter 23 and verse 2 is continuing along those same lines telling us, and Sarah died. We are confronted again with this reality that ever since the fall, as Courage says, all people without exception die. Even the matriarch Sarah, and as we'll see in subsequent chapters, even the patriarch Abraham, And if even the matriarch and the patriarch die, how will you or I escape? We have options for dealing with death. There are varying ways that people try to cope with and deal with death. There are ways that many unbelievers try to cope with death. And sometimes even believers do these things too, which is a failure to apply functional belief in the things that the Scripture tells us. Sometimes people avoid talking about death and avoid thinking about it. They don't want you to bring it up. They just want to eat and drink for tomorrow we die, let's... let's talk about good food and good drink let's talk about fun happy times let's not talk about death even among unbelievers funerals are increasingly being replaced by what we call celebrations of life nothing wrong with that in and of itself to celebrate someone's life but what you're finding more and more is that there's a gravity and a sobriety that is being suppressed or repressed in favor of a triviality and a lightness which helps people avoid the heavy and often negative feelings that accompany thinking about death. And so a celebration of life becomes sometimes, especially in unbelieving circles, something of just just revelry, drunkenness, loud music, happy pictures of the deceased around. We're not thinking about death. We just don't want to go there. Or sometimes people act like death is no big deal. People will say things well, like, well, it's just a part of life. No, it's actually not a part of life. It's actually the opposite of life. If it was just a part of life, the person would still be here. Death is not actually a natural part of life. The Lion King is an entertaining movie, but the circle of life is not a Christian idea here. Just this ever-flowing stream in which we swim for a little while and then come out we return to the dust and then from the dust other things come and 
which is all part of this grand natural cycle that rather than fear, we should embrace. This is not a Christian idea. But some people act this way. Like death is no big deal. Like it's just a normal part of life. Or sometimes people know that it's not a natural part of life. And it, to some extent, breaks them. They emotionally crumble under the ominous power of death over their loved ones. When they're faced with death, it shatters them, devastates them. They can't deal with this celebration of life, lightheartedness, and so on and so forth because they know that death is serious and bad. They can't deal with just acting like death is something to be embraced because they know that it's not. So they go to the other side and it it shatters them. What does Abraham do here when his wife dies? One thing we see is that he faces it. We read that Abraham went in. Verse 2. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It seems that probably Abraham had two camps or settlements. One in Beersheba, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where Abraham's been residing up to this point in the narrative. And then one here, it seems, in Kiriath Arba or Hebron. And so when it says Abraham went in, it's possible that he had been away and that the message came to him that his wife died. Because it seems that he wasn't there when she passed, which probably he would have been if he was in Hebron. Or maybe it was a long illness, and of course Abraham couldn't be by her bedside 24-7 for months. And so perhaps Abraham was out doing something else, some other tasks in their settlement in Hebron, and gets word that his wife has died. But what happens is he doesn't avoid the issue. He goes in to see this, what remains of his wife, in whose eyes he found a friend, a companion, saw the light of life, who doubtless, especially given what the scripture tells us of her beauty, those eyes into which doubtless he had looked hundreds of times or thousands of times in love, in intimacy, he goes in to see nothing behind those eyes. No more light. She's there, but she's not there. Body and soul have been separated. And Abraham mourns and weeps. We see this also in verse 2. He doesn't act like it's no big deal. Abraham doesn't just say, well, it's the circle of life. 
misappropriating that passage of Scripture which says, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's not intended to be a comfort to us with the passing of our loved ones, telling us that it's all part of a natural cycle. It's actually a statement of curse. You're going to return to the dust now because of sin. You're going to return to that dirt from which you came. Abraham doesn't explain away what has happened in order to reduce the negativity of it. He doesn't just accept it or embrace it as just a natural thing. He mourns and he weeps. And Abraham doesn't emotionally crumble, though. He mourns and he weeps, but not to the point where he's shattered by the passing of his wife. He doesn't emotionally crumble. He takes care of temporal affairs responsibly, which shows that he's still very much capable and has his wits about him, even as he mourns and even as he weeps. He still has capacity. In terms of short-term temporal affairs, he secures a place for the burial of his wife. Funeral arrangements. He's able to make funeral arrangements in spite of his grief, in spite of the mourning, in spite of the weeping. He's still able to make funeral arrangements. And in terms of long-term temporal affairs, Abraham purchases the plot of land rather than receive the burial rites as a gift. This passage might be a little foreign to us because this is not really the way we would make a deal. But what's going on here is basically a public negotiation at the gates of the city. So Abraham's wife dies and he says to them, Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Verse 4. The Hittites answered Abraham, verse 6, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. I think here at this point, everything is just face value. Abraham says he wants to bury Sarah. And I think the Hittites are saying, go ahead. You can bury her in one of our tombs. And we'll give you that space. It's just courtesy, respect being shown to Abraham who was a sojourner among them. But Abraham is not content to bury his wife in essentially donated space or in shared space with the dead of the Hittites. He rose and bowed to the Hittites, verse 7, and said to them in verse 8, If you are willing that I should bury my dad out of my sight, hear me and treat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Then verse 10 says, Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. So it seems here that what's happening is a polite way of saying, 
I would like Efron's plot. He's saying, please entreat Efron for me. It's sort of a way of speaking to someone's lawyer on behalf of the person or something. It's kind of a respectful and formal way to make an approach. So rather than turning to Efron and addressing him directly, he's saying to everybody, please entreat for me, Efron. Then Efron has a chance to respond. Ephron says, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. This is probably not at face value now. This is probably a polite way of showing respect and honor to Abraham, rather than just saying, Okay, here's how much it costs. He's kind of saying, Oh, I know you're grieving and this is a hard time for you. Go ahead and bury Sarah anyway. It's probably one of those offers that's not actually really an offer. In other words, he doesn't expect Abraham to take him up on this. It's like when you offer someone the last piece of food and you kind of really are not really offering it to them. You're kind of saying, I want it, but it's sort of polite it's a polite way to signal that you want it to say, does anyone else want this piece of food? <laughs> Something like this is going on here in this situation. This was the custom apparently in the ancient Near East of how you would negotiate. There's so much honor and formality and respect being shown. They, it, several times it says, and Abraham bowed before them. You know, and they're, they're saying, no, my Lord, hear me. And there's all this respect being exchanged. And so what's happening is Abraham has said he wants to buy it. Ephron says, go ahead and buy it, or go ahead and have it. And then Abraham comes back and says, if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And then again, Ephron's answer is just a polite way of telling him how much it costs. He says, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? <laughs> bury your dead, right? So it's like if someone here said, yeah, a piece of land worth $110,000. What is that between you and me? Right? right. You see what I'm saying? What's happening here is not actually Ephron, at this point, is not actually Ephron saying, I'm just giving it to you. It's kind of a polite way of negotiating the price. That's what's happening here in this section. So, in the beginning, they said, feel free. You can bury her in one of our tombs. But we will retain the ownership of the tomb and simply grant that you may bury your wife in one of our tombs. But now that Abraham has said he wants to purchase it, now they enter into these polite negotiations about what he's going to purchase and how much it's going to cost. Now, it seems most likely to me that what's going on here is something similar to Genesis chapter 14 where the king of Sodom says to Abram when he returns from defeating the kings of the east give me the persons but take the goods for yourself and Abraham said to the king of Sodom I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say I have made Abram rich It seems that that's what's going on here. Abraham knows that his descendants will possess the land eventually. This land in Canaan where he's going to bury Sarah. 
And it seems that he wants it to be very clear and publicly acknowledged that he paid full price for this. So that when his descendants come and inherit the land, nobody can twist the truth and say that this land was a gift from the Hittites to the descendants of Abraham, but that this is Yahweh's provision. So that seems to be what's going on with Abraham's negotiations here. So what we see is that Abraham faces death. Abraham mourns and weeps because of death. But he's not so shattered or crushed by it that he's not able to make funeral arrangements or consider even long-term plans that will affect his descendants. And then, fourthly, he buries, rather than cremates, Sarah's remains. This is how Abraham responds to death here in this passage. This is what we're explicitly told. And Abraham's actions here in this passage show functional belief in a bodily resurrection. First of all, let me demonstrate that Abraham did indeed believe in a bodily resurrection. This is important because my argument is not that this passage proves that Abraham believed in a bodily resurrection. Rather, my argument is that Abraham did believe in a bodily resurrection. And we see him here in this passage acting consistently with that belief. So we're seeing here functional belief rather than functional unbelief. Remember when he said to Abimelech, again, for the second time, recorded in the narrative, that Sarah was his sister. We talked about how that was functional unbelief. Things that he knew and said he believed, he wasn't acting consistently with those things. What we see here is the antithesis or the contrast. Things that Abraham knew and professed to believe he's acting consistently with here in this passage. Abraham's approach to death shows functional belief in a bodily resurrection. So let me show you first that Abraham did indeed believe in a bodily resurrection. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read for you verses 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to call to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born many descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And then he goes on to talk about Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. We're told in this passage that Abraham received promises concerning descendants, land, and a city. And we're told further in this passage that Abraham knew that he himself was looking for a better country than Canaan and a better city than that which would eventually become Jerusalem. He knew that his inheritance would not be ultimately these things. A heavenly country. A city whose builder and foundations is God. From Hebrews 11 alone, we might be tempted to, include, to conclude that the heavenly country and the heavenly city are simply metaphors for the dwelling place of disembodied spirits after death. And if that was the true teaching of Hebrews 11, then we would have to conclude that Abraham was at least looking forward to that. In other words, he was at least looking forward to a dwelling place for his spirit after he put off his body. Because Hebrews 11 is not talking about Canaan and Jerusalem. It's talking about something bigger and more ultimate than Canaan and Jerusalem. And it tells us explicitly that Abraham was looking forward to that. In other words, Hebrews 11 clearly teaches an existence beyond this temporal existence and clearly teaches that Abraham was looking forward to that existence which is beyond this temporal existence. Yet the rest of the scriptures do not paint the picture of an ethereal, otherworldly, disembodied existence for spirits apart from their bodies in, as the ultimate destination for us. Rather, 1 Corinthians 15 especially, which we read from earlier in the service, drives home the point that there will be a bodily resurrection. Remember that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when you see one apple come on the apple tree, you expect that more apples are coming on the apple tree. But when Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits, you expect that if he's the first fruits, more are coming. He, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us explicitly that we will be raised in the same manner to have the same kind of body as the resurrected Christ. And so, we cannot interpret Hebrews 11 as being in contradiction to other scriptures to be using country and city metaphorically or figuratively for a disembodied existence of spirits apart from our bodies beyond this life. We have to interpret Hebrews 11 as being consistent with other passages that teach a bodily resurrection. And understand then the country and the city language not to be metaphorical or figurative. 
but descriptive of the true nature of the existence of God's people on the other side of death after the coming resurrection. A real country and a real city for our real resurrected bodies to live. And if that's what Hebrews 11 means, which it has to, or it's in contradiction to things like 1 Corinthians 15, then the explicit teaching of Hebrews 11 is that Abraham knew about and was looking forward to that. Hebrews 11 teaches us then that Abraham believed in a bodily resurrection. And in case you still think it's a stretch to think that so early on in redemptive history, Abraham may have had knowledge of a bodily resurrection. Consider Job, who was probably a near contemporary of Abraham, who says in Job 19.26, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Consider also the implications of even the creation narrative, which Abraham would have been familiar with. That God formed not only the soul of man, but the body of man. And put them together as an integrated whole when He created us. An implication of that, which the Holy Spirit illuminates to our understanding, is that I am body as much as I am soul. We don't buy into this unbiblical idea that our real self is our soul and that our bodies are incidental to who we are. This is me, what you can see, and the part of me that you can't see is also me. This is an implication even of the creation narrative. And so, whether by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit or whether by the help of the Holy Spirit in understanding the history of the human race thus far, the creation of man, body, and soul, and the disintegration that happened because of sin, and the promise of God to undo the effects of death in the seed of the woman, Abraham knew and believed in a bodily resurrection. So now my argument goes like this. We see Abraham here in this passage acting consistently with his belief in a bodily resurrection. Rather than avoiding death, he faces it. Abraham went in. Genesis chapter 23 and verse 2. The doctrine of the resurrection helps us honestly face the expiration of our bodies. The bodies of our loved ones. Because we know that it's not the true end. We can think on our own mortality more easily in light of a coming resurrection than we could if death were the last word. If death were the last word, we might fear it so much that we wouldn't even want to think about it. Or we might think, well, what's the point? Because it comes to us all. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. There's nothing beyond it. So let's just not think about it. Let's not go there. The doctrine of the resurrection enables Abraham to go in and to see his wife's once beautiful body 
in the early stages of death and decomposition. See, where there was once light, now there's no light. Where there was once warmth, now there's no warmth. Where there was once softness, now the stiffness, the rigor mortis of death is setting in in his wife. He could face these things realistically and honestly because of the doctrine of the resurrection. And yet he's not callous to these things. He mourns and he weeps. He doesn't just face Sarah's death like a stoic, just accepting the facts and keeping a stiff upper lip. Abraham is able to acknowledge the unnaturalness of death. That our bodies and our souls were not meant to be separated, but that we were created body and soul. He grieves the destruction that sin has brought upon creation. Without sin entering the world, we would never have to look on a dead body. The doctrine of the resurrection and the doctrine of creation of mankind, which kind of go hand in hand, teach us that body and souls belong together. And this teaching leads us to weep in the interim when death interrupts the harmony and the unity of body and soul. So Christians should be those who can face death and talk about it and be honest about it. Our belief in the resurrection should enable us to be able to have frank conversations about death. And yet, Christians should also be those who mourn and weep because of death, who understand that our body and souls are meant to be together. They were in the beginning, they shall be in the end. And yet in the meantime, something awful has happened because of sin. And we can grieve that. Yet Abraham does not grieve excessively, becoming incapacitated. He doesn't emotionally crumble. But he takes care of, a te- of temporal affairs responsibly. In the short term, he secures a place for Sarah's burial. And Abraham thinks more long-term about his descendants as well, anticipating their future and planning for their circumstances. As I pointed out earlier, he purchases the plot of land rather than receiving burial rights as a gift. The doctrine of the resurrection keeps us from the kind of despair that could shatter us, could devastate us. That often does shatter and devastate people when they feel the irreversibility of death and yet have no hope of the resurrection. Christians should be those who are able to recognize that death is a hard part of our experience, but it's not the final word in our experience. And so we're able with God's help, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, to pass through the deep waters, to pass through the fire, knowing that He is with us, that nothing in life nor in death can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this can keep the thought of death from absolutely shattering us.
absolutely causing us to absolutely crumble. And then lastly, Abraham buries rather than cremates Sarah's remains. I don't want to make a strong argument against cremation as if it's a sin. And I don't want to be insensitive to those here who may have had loved ones who were cremated. You would never be under church discipline for cremating a loved one. And you would never have me refuse to do a funeral if you chose cremation for a loved one. But I just want to think here about the theology of burial versus cremation. I do believe that it's more consistent with a bodily resurrection not to intentionally destroy a body. The way that we would never intentionally destroy a soul if we had that power. Why would we intentionally destroy what is our loved one? When I die, my body is me and will be me lying there lifeless without my soul. And I will be at the same time with Christ. The New Testament says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so you have this strange situation that happens in death where the body lying there is really me. And yet I am also in soul with Christ. But the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of resurrection tells us that both are actually me. And so I do think that there is a difference between allowing the inevitable decomposition of a body to take place versus causing the decomposition of the body. My father and I were talking once about this. And we would share similar perspective on this. And this might not be your perspective, and that's okay. But I'm just trying to help shepherd us through thoughts of death because eventually these are things we're all going to have to talk about. These are all things that we're going to have to decide in our families, for ourselves, for our loved ones. My father and I were talking and he was saying the same thing that he thinks is more consistent with a bodily resurrection to bury rather than to cremate. But he says certain factors would make him think about cremation. For example, he goes to Malawi every year for a few weeks. And he said if he were to die in Malawi, he would want to be cremated because the difficulty of repatriating his body to be buried or arranging uh, for it over there where there's not nearly the same kind of services over there in terms of burial and cemetery plots and so on and so forth. 
he thinks that probably the most the simplest and most cost-effective thing to do would be cremation. And listen, he's sure, and I'm sure, that whatever happens to our body at the end, or even the manner in which we die, in whatever ways our bodies suffer, listen, when that trumpet sounds, and Christ Jesus comes back. Whether you're six feet under at Coral Ridge, whether your ashes have been scattered off the coast of Barbados or somewhere else, whatever has happened, for those who have died in Christ Jesus, there is no difficulty whatsoever for our great God and Savior to put that body back together. No difficulty whatsoever. As we face death, we need to bring functional belief into this conversation as we think about end-of-life issues. Are we avoiding death or are we facing it realistically? Are we acting like it's no big deal? Or are we appropriately grieving it? Are we crushed by it? Or are we able to function in spite of it? And do we treat the body, even in death, as though it's part of who we are and afford it commensurate care and dignity? As we face death, and we all face death, we have a case study here in Sarah's death and burial about how to approach it in a way that is consistent with our belief in the resurrection of the body. Christians should be those who can deal with death the best. Because here here are some truths that we need to bring to bear as we discuss these things. One is we will die. Again, Genesis chapter 5. And he died, and he died, and he died. Then Genesis 23, and Sarah died. And if someone were to write an account of my life, the last page would read, and John died. There's a universality to death. We of all people should be able to face that. And yet we ought to think of it as an unnatural thing due to sin we ought to grieve and to mourn as our loved ones pass and yet we ought to when it comes to the death of our loved ones who have died in Christ we ought to sorrow as the apostle says but not as those who have no hope For those with faith in Christ will be raised as He was. As 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Jesus came as the promised seed of the woman. Jesus came as the promised seed of Abraham. In whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. People from every tribe, 
and language and people and nation whose bodies have gone into the ground whose ashes have been scattered around who have died in tragedies and have been buried by natural processes in unmarked graves all over the world who have died at sea people from every tribe and language and people and nation will rise on that day because Christ Jesus came the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth he lived in the place of sinners and he died in our place and he rose conquering death so that it doesn't have the last word it's not actually the final chapter but it's a it's a transition between this life and the next for those who have died in Christ Jesus we have that confidence that our bodies will be raised and so death for the believer is a hurdle on our race to eternal life some of us struggle more or less with death than others some of us clear the hurdle better than others some of us stumble over the hurdle catch our toe on it as we try to make that jump but all of us who are Christians will get over that hurdle and will reach the finish line the other side of the Jordan held fast by our Savior that seed of the woman that seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed Abraham had faith in that bodily resurrection was looking forward to that better country was looking forward to that better city and that enabled him to navigate end of life issues pertaining to his wife his beloved whom he loved in a way that honored the reality of the grief and the sorrow that accompanies death in a way that honored who she is not only soul but body and yet also in a way that didn't absolutely cripple him and in a way that absolutely didn't didn't absolutely destroy him because he knew he knew that just as that messiah was raised so his wife one day would be raised we need to bring that functional belief that same functional belief to end of life issues as we think about our own eventual death and as we think about the death of the loved ones around us and of course for ourselves or for our loved ones if we are not in Christ or if they are not in Christ we need to get the message of Christ Jesus the message of that heavenly country the message of that heavenly city into our hearts or as best as we can in so far as it depends on us into their hearts in order that they might be able to have that same hope and bring that functional belief to their end of life issues as well so i would urge you don't think of death the same way that the world thinks of death 
don't just automatically assume that what non-Christians around you believe about death or the way that they think about end-of-life issues. Don't just automatically assume that those are the best ways to think about things or the best ways to do things. Think about end-of-life issues in terms of what the Scripture says about the body and the soul and the, the body's eventual resurrection and eternal life and bring belief to functionally bear, not just that you profess the right doctrines about the resurrection, but bring these things to functionally bear on end-of-life issues as you have to navigate them, whether concerning yourself or whether concerning family members or friends.